I'm John, and this is D-O-L-W-2, episode 30, The Rite of Sodomy. And I'll be reading from The Rite of Sodomy, Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church by Randy Engel, volume 4, pages 1025 to 1035, and then the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was only a matter of time before the news that Nugent and Gramic were footloose and fancy-free reached the ears of Cardinal Hickey in the Archdiocese of Washington, D.C. Hickey goes on the warpath. On October 10, 1989, Cardinal Hickey fired off two letters, one to the Congregation for Religious and Secular Institutes, now known as the Congregation for Institutes of Consecrated Life and Societies of Apostolic Life, and one to Bishop Maida at the Chancery Office in Green Bay. Hickey reminded courier officials then and Maida that in 1988, Archbishop Pio Laghi had reaffirmed the 1983 ruling from the congregation that prohibited Gramic and Nugent from engaging in any homosexual apostolate whatsoever, unless it is clearly stated that homosexual acts are intrinsically and objectively wrong. The responses Cardinal Hickey received from Rome and Maida are not a matter of public record. What is a matter of public record is that a cone of silence fell over the MITRE Commission for five long years. During this time, Nugent and Gramic created more organizational fronts behind which they continued their work on behalf of the homosexual collective. They also continued their pro-homosexual writings, the ideological writings of new ways. As the MITRE Commission was charged with investigating the charity, the clarity and orthodoxy of the public presentations of Father Nugent and Sister Gramic with respect to the Church's teaching on homosexuality, it was expected that the Commission would include a complete review of all of New Way's major publications, for it is through their words written and spoken as well as through their activities with New Ways and the Catholic Coalition for Gay Civil Rights and the like, that Nugent and Gramic reveal their anti-Catholic ideological bias- biases. Since 1983, Gramic and Nugent have edited a number of books on homosexuality and the Catholic Church and have contributed various essays on the subject, many of which are at the cutting edge of the new gay-lesbian theology. A review of all these important in-house works is presented in order of the date of publication, beginning with A Challenge to Love in 1980 and ending with Voices of Hope that was published in 1995 after the Maida Commission had made its findings public. A Challenge to Love. A Challenge to Love, Gay and Lesbian Catholics in the Church, edited by Robert Nugent, is the first major work on homosexuality published by New Ways in 1980. It opens with an invitation to dialogue by Bishop Walter Sullivan of Richmond, Virginia, and is followed by 
18 commentaries on homosexuality, ostensibly from different perspectives, i.e. societal, biblical, pastoral, and vocational views of homosexuality. However, with the exception of Reverend Edward A. Malloy's essay, Point Counterpoint, the presentations are unabashedly pro-homosexual. Many of the priest religious contributors are well-known in homosexualist circles, including Dominican Matthew Fox, Father Gregory Baum, Margaret A. Farley, RSM, Franciscan Michael D. Guinan, Jesuit John McNeil, Dominican Bruce A. Williams, Christian brother James R. Zulio, Margaret Kropenak of the Sisters of St. Joseph in Pittsburgh, and Newton's housemate, Father Paul K. Thomas of the Archdiocese of Baltimore. The lead article by Janine Gromick is titled Prejudice, Religion, and Homosexual People. Gromick asserts that a societal unwillingness to sanction any sexual behaviors which depart from an established norm may be a symptom of homophobia. However, the characteristics and root causes of homosexual prejudice remain basically the same, religious and familial and sexual dogmatism, she states. The nun concludes that homosexual prejudice can be, can be replaced with toleration and finally with acceptance through education and conscious phrasing efforts directed at the shattering of gay and lesbian myths and stereotypes, the removal of discriminatory legal barriers, and the end to any taboo behavior society assigns as unnatural. In the Christian body and homosexual maturing, Christian brother Zulo and Dr. James D. Whitehead weigh in with the novel idea of the bisexuality of the body of Christ, i.e. the people of God, are part of homosexual are part homosexual and part heterosexual, according to the authors, as the largest as the larger Christian community is instructed in the differing patterns of gay religious maturing, it will be exercised of some of its homophobia and come closer, if belatedly and reluctantly, to his own ideal of Christ's radical mutuality. Gay and lesbian Christians are more than like heterosexual Christians than they are different, Zulu and Whitehead conclude. Theologian sociologist Gregory Baum's essay, The Homosexual Condition and Political Responsibility, centers upon the oppression and liberation of homosexual peoples and their divine call to become prophets, critics of society, agents of social change, reformers, or radicals. However, the key point Baum wants to drive home is that Christian gaps, Christian gays want to be loyal to one another, whether they choose to follow the radical or the reformist way. In homosexuality, lesbianism and the future, the creative role of the gay community in building a more humane society, the Jesuit priest and partnered John McNeil picks up on Baum's theme of the unique and even superior psychological qualities of gays, including their heightened sense of empathy 
and pedagogical eros. McNeil states that one of the essential services gays render for heterosexuals is the freeing of the latter from the shackles of traditional procreative sexual ethics by guiding their heterosexual brothers and sisters to a new, happier, more fulfilled and human sexual life. Similarly, Gabriel Moran in Education, Sexual and Religious argues that the human race will never understand power, love, and transcendence as long as it fails to embrace gay sexuality. In Homosexuals, a Christian Pastoral Response Now, Franciscan priest Michael Guinan denies the idea that gays recruit from the young or that they molest the young. Daniel McGuire in The, Morally, in the Morality of Homosexual Marriage defends homosexuals against the calumnious, calumnious charge of preferred promiscuity. In gay Catholics and Eucharistic communion, theological param- parameters, Dominican Bruce Williams, who will later defend Nugent and Gramic before the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, subtly but effectively undermines the Church's prohibition against actively gay Catholics receiving the Eucharist. Williams argues that if contraceptive, contraceptive couples acting in good faith can receive Holy Communion, why not active homosexuals who are living in a faithful relationship and who act in good conscience, despite the objective inadequacy of their conformity to the Church? He bolsters his argument by quoting fellow Dominicans Benedict Ashley, who told the American and Canadian bishops in Dallas in February in 1981 at a sexuality workshop that while the church ought to continue to preach from the housetops her perennial moral principles on the subject of human sexuality, nevertheless the magisterium must not reject or neglect those persons whose subjective conscience does not permit them as yet to see the practical truth of the church's teachings on these difficult sexual, not homosexual homosexuality specific matters. Williams concludes that gay Catholics involved in a lifestyle they honestly do not recognize as sinful should not be discouraged from this in unique means of grace any more severely than what other than other seriously errant believers who are presumably in good faith. Father Matthew Fox chimes in with the good news of creation-centered spirituality and the homosexual as anawam, poor or afflicted, in the spiritual journey of the homosexual and just about everyone else. One of Fox's parting statements is that as we move from a sexual era to a mystical era, we need those, i.e. homosexuals, who can teach us the lighter, more playful, less serious, and less goal-oriented side to sexuality, the mystical side. Here, as Masters and Johnsons have found, the homosexual offers a gift to the heterosexual community and society as a whole, concludes Fox. Father Paul Thomas's essay, Gay and Lesbian Ministry, During Marital Breakdown and the Annulment Process, 
is spliced with subtle pro-homosexual tidbits. For example, there is his biblical reference to Jonathan, who Thomas says had a homosexual orientation, and his assertion that nearly all contemporary experts believe that a genuine homosexual or heterosexual orientation is basically irreversible. Thomas, a homosexual, calls any attempt to alter a person's basic personality, including his or her affectional preference, a moral outrage. As a footnote to his comments on the licitness and validity of marital impediments, Thomas tosses out a feeler in favor of stable homosexual unions. Ecclesiastical authorities would undoubtedly propose norms and guidelines for the benefit of lesbian and gay male relationships if the Catholic Church ever differentiated its well-known official teaching about same-sex general behavior, e.g. by qualifying homosexual relations as immoral only for heterosexual persons, not for homosexual couples. Even now, some moral theologians, such as Bishop Keene, have tentatively suggested that the church and society should be open to finding other ways of supporting stable homosexual unions. This statement reflects Thomas's opinion that while non-homosexuals pervert their own basic nature through homosexual behavior, so gay and lesbian people act contrary to their own true orientation by entering heterosexual relationships. Thomas also supports Kinsey's claim that homosexuality is as natural as heterosexuality. He also approves of the 1973 statement of the American Psychiatric Association that homosexuality per se implies no impairment in judgment, stability, reliability, or general social or vocational capabilities. Father Paul Thomas is identified in A Challenge to Love as a priest of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, a procurator advocate for annulment cases, and judge delegate on the Archdiocesan Tribunal, a member of the Archdiocesan Outreach Ministry for Gay and Lesbian Catholics, and a board of director of Communication Ministry, Inc. The fact that Thomas is chairman of the board of directors of New Ways is not disclosed. The essay, Point Counterpoint, by Reverend Edward A. Malloy, CSC, a professor at Notre Dame and author of Homosexuality and the Christian Way of Life, is offered as a counterweight to the overtly pro-homosexual bias of a challenge to love. Malloy contends that his research has convinced him that the homosexual way of life as evolved in the social structures and practices of the homosexual subculture is irreconcilable with the Christian way of life. On the first reading, especially when compared to the unbridled enthusiasm for homosexuality that marks the other essays, Malloy's approach seems almost Catholic, but it is not. And therein lies the hidden danger, for the most dangerous of lies are those that come closest to the truth. For example, while Malloy disapproves of the impersonal, selfish, and capricious nature of many homosexual interactions, he, like Father Charles Curran, approves of the homosexual couple who have forged a life 
together across a considerable period of time in the absence of normal societal approbation and who strive to be faithful to the commitment they share are worthy of respect and understanding. This is not a Catholic position. As for William, as Father William Hines, a defender of the faith, explains, on what possible grounds can a sin gain moral standing because it is habitual? The opposite is true. The more inveterate and long-term, the more insidious the evil. The sin is not now one of passion and maladaptive social, maladaptive sexual patterns, but rather a series of conscious choices and reinforcement made repeatedly in the cold light of day. The implication being that there might be theological reasonableness to acceptance of long-term homosexual relationships. Such an answer is far from the truth of our faith. The final verdict on Malloy's essay, Nice Try But No Cigar. A challenge to love ends with Robert Nugent's essay, Priest, Celibate, and Gay, You Are Not Alone, in which the author cites the work of Christian brother Luke Psalm on four basic approaches to chastity. First, the traditional approach, which obliges vowed religious and celibate clergy to abstain from all general and sexual experiences. Second, a relaxed but traditional approach, which recognizes the traditional norms but allows for relaxation and variation in certain limited situations. Third, a complete break from with tradition that morally justifies responsible general sexual activity according to individual circumstance, which would embrace both committed relationships as well as those simply for pleasure and recreation, where neither physical nor emotional harm can result. Psalm favors this approach for religious. And fourth, the approach favored by many feminists, that is, the complete redefinition of what chastity and celibacy means from a relational and communal perspective, rather than a patriarchal model which views celibacy in general terms. In reality, what we have here is one mode of chastity and three modes of unchaste behavior, since being a little unchaste is like being a little bit pregnant. Nugent mentions, but discounts as untenable, a fifth approach for bishops and superiors of religious orders. This approach would be to deny the problem of a sexually active clergy and religious in the hope that the problem will disappear, resolve itself naturally, or at least be kept from becoming a source of public scandal. Nugent confirms the existence of both the United States and a Canada of a communications network of gay clergy and religious whose main purpose is to share through a monthly publication areas of general interest and concern. He notes that the days of reflection and weekend retreats have been also been provided by the networks, even though widespread publicity is impossible, since an obvious need for anonymity dominates this form of support and pastoral concern. Nugent is referring to the Communication Ministry, Inc., CMD, the organization conducts nationwide retreats and gatherings for homosexual clergy and religious and their lovers. 
Although CMI was organized in Philadelphia in October 1977, it was not officially incorporated in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania until January 1982. Its underground newspaper newsletter communication was initially published by Dignity Philadelphia. In 1994, CMI moved its office to the Gay-Friendly Archdiocese of Chicago under Colonel Bernadine. The organization maintains contact with the USCCB through the National Catholic AIDS Network, NCAN, and the Campaign for Human Development. Nugent closes his essay with a challenge to the church to conquer innate fears and anxieties about homosexuality in general and gay clergy and religious in particular, so as to improve the quality of clerical life and renounce religious quality of clerical life, enhance the ministerial gifts of many priests, make celibacy itself more credible and compelling, and help other priests come to experience that one priest recently that one priest recently shared. I have been out with my superiors since I was a novice and aware of my gayness. They, appear, they approved me for vows and now for ordination. I have witnessed an evolution in myself. Now it is clear to me that I must find a way of replacing the cycle of repression and depression that I have inflicted on myself as a mode of reconciling my sexuality and my vows with some as yet undiscovered pattern of expression and celebration. Homosexuality in the Catholic Church, published by New Ways in 1983 and edited by Janine Gramick, Homosexuality in the Catholic Church contains essays by well-known homosexualists and justice collectors, including Mercy Sister Teresa Kane, past president of the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, Severian Brother Cornelius Hovick, secretary-treasurer of the Conference of major superiors of men and avowed homosexual Brian McNaught. In her preface to the book, Gramic states that between 1973 and 1983, there is a paradigm shift in attitudes towards homosexuality in the Catholic Church, and that these changes were evident at New Way's first national symposium on homosexuality in the Catholic Church held in Washington, D.C. in November 1981. Her essay, New Sociological Theory on Homosexuality, discusses the role of the social sciences, such as psychology, psychiatry, anthropology, biology, and sociology as a source of ethical values. In the field of sexology, sexology she said, the trend among professional sexologists seems to view homosexual behavior not as a sexual deviation, but rather as a sexual variation. She nixes the idea of an absolute reality which views homosexual acts as a transgression against societal norms in favor of a subjective reality that is located in consciousness and is a consequence of specific interactions which are in turn dependent upon the situation and the individuals involved. Gramic defines homophobia as any systemic judgment which advocates negative myths and stereotypes about lesbian gay persons. She paraphrases the theories of psychologist S.M. Moran 
and S. Wallace, who found that the best predictor of homophobic attitudes is a belief in the traditional family power structure, i.e. a dominant father, submissive mother, and obedient children, and traditional religious beliefs and traditional attitudes toward women. Nugent's essay, Homosexuality, Celibacy, Religious Life, and Ordination, opens with a plug for the canonization of the supposed gay patron saint, Aylred of Revol. He quotes Carl Jung on the unique attributes homosexual people bring to religion, including a particular receptivity to spiritual realities and a richness of religious feelings. Nugent notes that by the early 1970s, some American bishops had expressed concern over the growing numbers of candidates for the priesthood who were overtly effeminate, and that, in fact, there were increasing numbers of well increasing numbers of self-acknowledged homosexual males who were seeking submission, who were seeking admission to seminaries and religious orders. Already, among already ordained gay and lesbian priests and religious, he says, there is a growing inner need either to identify publicly with the struggles, struggles of, a, of homosexual people in church and society, or to come out to avoid a sense of personal hypocrisy or duplicity. In a backdoor attack on priestly celibacy, Nugent raises the question, does physical abstinence of a self ever have a religious value hard to affirm if we do not want to promote an anti-sexuality attitude? He goes on to quote a statement that Thomas Merton had, was supposed to have uttered that past uttered that conditions had changed and that celibacy, even for a monk, was a thing of the past. Sister Teresa Kane's essay, Civil Rights in a Church of Compassion, gives an interesting perspective to the interlock between the homosexual movement and the feminist movement. She traces her interest in homosexuality as a civil rights issue to early 1979, when she and five other Mercy Sisters endorsed the statement of the Catholic Coalition for Gay Civil Rights, distributed by New Ways. That same year, the Mercy Sisters opened their generalate and mother house in Pontemac, Maryland, to a New Ways sponsored strategy conference on homophobia in the church. Kane acknowledges that some Mercy Sisters did not agree with either the endorsement of the CCGCR or the use of mercy facilities to house the New Ways Conference. But the general administrative team of the Sisters of Mercy of the Union approved of the actions nevertheless. Kane concludes her article with a feminist plea for the church to commit itself to a stance of compassion. The church also needs to overcome the sin of sexism and welcome a spirit of diversity in dissent, she says. Another contributor to the New Ways book is Father Charles Curran, pontificating from his seat as a professor as a professor of moral theology at the Catholic University of America. Curran dismisses the natural law theory in his essay Moral Theology and Homosexuality. Under the 
penumbra of what Quran calls a theory or a theology of com compromise. He affirms that for an irreversible constitutional or genuine homosexual homosexual acts in the context of a loving relationship striving for permanency are objectively morally good. However, when homosexual acts occur outside the context of such a relationship, as in the case of pedophilia or bestiality, these acts cannot be justified, he says. Other essays include Reflections of a Gay Catholic by avowed homosexual writer Brian McNaught, Overcoming the Structured Evil of Male Domination and Heterosexualism, Heterosexism by feminist theologian Barbara Zanotti of the Women's Ordination Conference, WOC, and Growing Up Lesbian and Catholic by former Dignity Official Ann Borden. Homosexuality in the Magisterium, edited by John Gallagher, Homosexuality in the Magisterium, Documents from the Vatican and the U U.S. Bishops, 1975 to 1985, was published by New Ways in 1986. It purports to bring together the teachings of the Church on the issue of homosexuality. However, as Gallagher states in his introduction, the articulation of the magister magisterial teaching on homogenital behavior is not the main point of most of these statements from Roman and United States Catholic sources. Dwelling on a simple and unnuanced repetition of such magisterial teachings becomes a source of oppression for gay and lesbian people, says Gallagher, and is often seen as being prejudicial against homosexual people. The collection of official and unofficial statements, therefore, tends to be what Bishop Walter Sullivan calls pastoral in nature, and which, according to Gallagher, best convey some of some sense of movement and growth in the church's awareness of the reality of a homosexual identity in our church and culture. In other words, the text is long on homosexuality and short on magisterium. The book identifies the following bishops, some of which are now deceased, as being sympathetic to the homosexual collective. Bishop Francis Mugavero, Archbishop John R. Roach, Archbishop John R. Quinn, Archbishop Rembrandt Weakland, Bishop Walter Sullivan, Archbishop Raymond Hunthausen, Archbishop John F. Wheaton, uh, John F. Whelan, Archbishop James A. Hickey, and Cardinal Joseph L. Bernardin. There are two full-length documents cited in the text that scream out for a special comment. The first is the April 28, 1983 statement of the Washington State Catholic Conference, WSCC, in Seattle, Washington, titled The Prejudice Against Homosexuals and the Ministry of the Church. The WSCC paper is said to have been commissioned by church authorities to represent an official church position. Therefore, it does not attempt to rethink or develop substantially the Catholic position on the morality of homosexuality. The drafters of the document continue, much such rethinking and development is needed in this and all other areas of the Church's tradition. Despite the statement that the WSCC position paper is orthodox and represents 
the current official position of the church as a given for its limited purposes. The document's primary focus, as the title suggests, is the, is the nature and reprehensibleness of prejudice against homosexuals. According to the WSCC, the prejudice against homosexuals is a greater infringement of the norm of Christian morality than is homosexual orientation or activity. The church can combat the evil prejudice against homosexuals by strongly proclaiming the gross evils of prejudicial attitudes and conduct towards lesbians and gays by fostering legislation at all levels in the state and in the ecclesiastical arena to remove systemic prejudice and by fostering ongoing theological research and criticism with regard to its own theological tradition on homosexuality, none of which is infallibly taught, state the drafters of the document. The second questionable document, titled Ministry and Homosexuality in the Archdiocese of San Francisco, is a pastoral statement formulated by the Senate of Priests of San Francisco in May 1983 and approved by the approved by Archbishop John R. Quinn. It is of special significance given the large population of homosexuals who live in the San Francisco Bay Area. The introduction to the pastoral statement promises fidelity to the gospel, but it does not deliver on that promise. For example, in a section on ministry to homosexual communities, Father John Harvey's Catholic support group, Courage, is mentioned. However, the pastoral goes on to state that for many homosexuals, groups like Courage do not constitute a realistic avenue of personal development. Therefore, the church must stand ready to support other types of organizations of Catholic homosexual men and women in their efforts to fight homophobia and help them to gain access to church facilities for meetings. The priest-senate proposal outlines an elaborate, multifaceted board of ministries to improve diocesan communication and cooperation with these groups. Since major pro-homosexual groups like Dignity and the Metropolitan Community Churches are not specifically excluded, the reader can safely conclude that these are the organizations to which the Archdiocese of San Francisco should build bridges. Certain sections of the pastoral statement read like Goss, Gay and Lesbian Manifesto. The whole believing community must come to appreciate the oppressive walls that have been and are being erected to cut us off from our homosexual brothers and sisters. And we must work together on all sides of those walls to tear them down inch by inch until the barriers of anger and misunderstanding and fear that divide us exist no more. The document perceives the Catholic educational system as a potent vehicle to sensitize their faculties and students to issues regarding homosexuality. It calls for a high school level mandatory curriculum that deals with homosexuality to be integrated into existing sexuality or life planning or science courses. This educational component would include sessions dealing with real-life experiences of homosexual men and women, their feelings of alienation, 
of depression, of being discriminated against, of whole personhood. Most of the documents cited in homosexuality and the magisterium are not as overtly pro-homosexual and anti-magisterial as the above two statements, but the overall selection of documents of Amchurch are skewed in favor of the homosexual collective within and without the church. And now for a reading from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Section 1, Man's Vocation, Life in the Spirit, 1699. Life in the Holy Spirit fulfills the vocation of Chapter 1, fulfills vocation of man, Chapter 1. This life is made up of divine charity and human solidarity, Chapter 2. It is graciously offered as salvation, Chapter 3. Chapter 1, The Dignity of the Human Person, 1700. The dignity of the human person is rooted in its creation, in the image and likeness of God, Article 1. It is fulfilled in his vocation to divine beatitude, Article 2. It is essential to a human being freely to direct himself to this fulfillment, Article 3. By his deliberate actions, Article 4, the human person does or does not conform to the good promised by God and assisted by moral conscience, Article 5. Human beings make their own contribution to their interior growth. They make their whole sentient and spiritual lives into means of this growth, Article 6. With the help of grace, they grow in virtue. Article 7, avoid sin, and if they sin, they entrust to themselves, as did the prodigal son, to the mercy of our Father in heaven, Article 8. In this way, they attain the perfection of charity. Article 1, man the image of God. 1701, Christ, in the very revelation of the mystery of the Father and of his love, makes man fully manifest to himself and brings to light his exalted vocation. It is in Christ, the image of the invisible God, that man has been created in the image and likeness of the Creator. It is in Christ, Redeemer and Savior, that the divine image, disfigured in man by the first sin, has been restored to its original beauty and ennobled by the grace of God. 1702, the divine image is present in every man. It shines forth in the communion of persons and the likeness of the unity of the divine persons among themselves. See CF chapter 2, 1703. Endowed with a spiritual and immortal soul, the human person is the only creature on earth that God has willed for its own sake. From his conception, he is destined for eternal beatitude. 1704, the human person participates in the light and power of the divine spirit. By his reason, he is capable of understanding the order of things established by the creator. By free will, he is capable of directing himself toward his true good. He finds his perfection in seeking and loving what is true and good. 1705. By virtue of his soul and his spiritual powers of intellect and will, man is endowed with freedom, an outstanding manifestation of the divine image. 1706. By his reason, man recognizes the voice of God, which urges him to do what is good and avoid what is evil. Everyone is obliged to follow this law, which makes itself heard in conscience and is fulfilled in the love of God and of neighbor, living a moral life 
bears witness to the dignity of the person. 1707. Man enticed by the evil one abused his freedom at the very beginning of history. He succumbed to temptation and did what was evil. He still desires the good, but his nature bears the wound of original sin. He is now inclined to evil and subject to error. Man is divided in himself. As a result, the whole life of men, both individual and social, shows itself to be a struggle and a dramatic one between good and evil, between light and darkness. 1708. By his passion, Christ delivered us from Satan and from sin. He merited for us the new life in the Holy Spirit. His grace restores what sin had damaged in us. 1709. He who believes in Christ becomes a son of God. This filial adoption transforms him by giving him the ability to follow the example of Christ. It makes him capable of acting rightly and doing good in union with his Savior. The divine, the disciple attains the perfection of charity, which is holiness. Having matured in grace, the moral life blossoms into eternal life in the glory of heaven. And this is all my readings from the rite of sodomy and the catechism for today. And so I'll end my podcast here. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. May God bless this podcast, and may the Holy Spirit use it to touch people's hearts. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.